Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek, and I'm here with Michelle Nyhaus. Michelle, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me, Josh. Glad to have you here. And I'm going to start with a little bit. I'll, I'll read the top of your bio, and then I, I think we're going to jump right in about talking. So the listeners know we were just talking about that we both live. All right, first thing on your uh, bio. After 15 years off the grid in rural Colorado, my family and I now live in White Salmon, Washington, on the north side of the Columbia River Gorge. So listeners know that I've been off the grid for not quite 15 years, uh, almost two months. And we started talking about that before recording. So we're going to jump back into that. A lapsed biologist, continuing your bio, a lapsed biologist, I specialize in stories about conservation and global change, but I've covered subjects ranging in, uh, from theater to wrestling to my preschooler's conviction that Bill O'Baggins is a girl. Now that makes me very intrigued. And my book, Beloved Beasts, Fighting for, an, uh, for Life in an Age of Extinction, a critical history of the modern conservation movement, was published by W.W. W. Norton in 2021 and was named one of the best books of 2021 by the Chicago Tribune, Smithsonian, Booklist, and other publications. I'm a project editor at The Atlantic, where I edit features for the Planet section and, feature, and a series of collection of uh, a series called Life Up Close, regularly contributed to, oh, to New York Review of Books. And here I'm going to go off the, uh, the bio and into how I met you, yes. because you wrote a story called Must We Grow that featured a multiple-time guest on this podcast, J.B. McKinnon, whose books have been very influential to me. And I quote, not quote, but paraphrase all the time. Wonderful writer. Yeah. yeah. And his first book, or his latest book, The Day the World Stopped Shopping, is just fascinating. Yes. And uh, I hope we get to that too. I want to talk about you writing more. And I want to talk about going off the grid because you've been off the grid a lot longer than I have. You were off the grid for a lot longer. And it's an amazing experience. I would never have believed. I, I really, when I stopped using power, I thought, I hope I make it through the next day. Then it's, I hope I make it the next week. And I certainly had challenges. Of, I hope I make it through the next, like three rainy days in a row because I don't have a particularly big battery to charge. Can we jump into that? Would you mind, or would you prefer to yeah. talk about the writing first? Or I think they'll all kind of come together. No, it, it is all connected. So let's talk about being off the grid because you, your experiment is, um, I think, involves a lot more suspense and excitement than my, than my 15 years off the grid did because we had, I, I sort of um, married into living off the grid, I guess. I was in my early 20s and when I met my husband-to-be, he had just finished building a straw, small straw bale house in the town where we both lived in, in rural Colorado. And he and some friends of ours had bought a piece of land that they could afford because there was no grid. <laughs> it was not served by uh, conventional power lines. Um, it also didn't have any irrigation water, which made it very, very cheap um, and undesirable to most people in rural Colorado. So they had each bought, built their eccentric, you know, energy efficient homes. And our house, his house, which became our house, was served by a couple of solar panels. And so, so I was, I, I, it hadn't been my idea, but I was very happy to, I loved the concept of it and I loved the reality of it actually most of the time. Um, and so I was more than happy that that uh, came as his dowry, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we, so we really had, um, I know you've told me about having to run up to the roof and charge your batteries and so forth, but we really had a very dependable source of power 
most of the time. We had a small small solar array, which charged some boat batteries, which were stored in our bathroom. Um, and then we had relatively few utilities. This was before the age of streaming. So, you know, we didn't have, we, you know, occasionally would watch DVDs, but we didn't have a large screen TV. We didn't have anything that would, that would be a big power suck. So we almost always had plenty of power for what we felt we needed. And occasionally, as you say, we would have those, you know, three rainy days or three very snowy days in Colorado. And uh, we would get a little bit nervous, you know, oh, 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 are we going to run out of power? And we had to, you know, watch the monitor. But otherwise, it was not something we even had to think about on a daily basis. It was really pretty easy. If he set it up before you got there or as you were getting there, did he do a lot of research? Because one advantage that I have now is I have this commercial system. I mean, I got it used off of Craigslist, but I bought the battery pack or uh, the power station, they call it now, from one person and the solar panels from another. Turns out there's some connector that is like the standard connector. They work. And I didn't have to string car batteries together. On the other hand, I didn't do the research. My research, this is my research. I've learned from experience. If I try to figure it out, if I try to, too much analyzing planning just delays things. True. So I now know that it's got, my battery holds 576 kilowatt hours. And at the beginning, I was like, I don't know. I know what a kilowatt hour means. I know the difference between energy and power. I got a physics degree. But is 566 a lot or 576 a lot, a little? I don't know. Did, did he figure that stuff out or did you figure it out in the doing? Yeah. Um, he, well, I mean, first of all, to say the industry has just changed radically uh, since he built the house and even since we left. So he built the house um, in the mid to late 90s. I moved in in 99 and we moved away in 2013. And, you know, so just in the last decade, I mean, solar panels have become so much cheaper because of changes in manufacturing. And then I think they've become way more customer friendly. You know, it doesn't, my husband happens to be a guy who also has a physics degree um, and, you know, is just inclined toward tinkering, really loves, you know, doing things on the cheap and uh, doing things for himself. So he enjoyed that challenge. And, you know, there were, there were plenty of people around who had, walked that path before who he could get advice from, but he did have to kind of piece it together from various sources. He couldn't just, you know, click and buy, which I think you can essentially do now, or you can at least hire someone to, um, you know, do the equivalent for you. So, and, you know, his, our system was put together on the cheap and, you know, was put together with, you know, used parts and things like that. So, so he did occasionally have to do some, some maintenance and figuring and so forth. And, um, you know, whenever I use that, this, our famous, like Lucy and Desi moment was when, you know, I was trying to dry my hair in the bathroom and he would bang on the door and say, have you checked the meter? And um, So he sometimes had to be a little bit vigilant, but really it was not, you know, despite that, it was not something that was like a giant presence in our lives. It was really, you know, I always considered it an advantage both financially, you know, we didn't have bills. And then I just think unconsciously, you know, there's, there's an unconscious satisfaction and reward, uh, partially unconscious, at least sometimes conscious reward in, in living in alignment or more in alignment with your values. So many directions I want to go. And I want to talk about, did you ever, I mean, did you have, did you ever run out? Did you ever have an emergency where you like had to make 
a call and the power went down and, or, you know, I don't know. I'm trying to think of what might be the issue. Cause yeah, like I'm right now talking to you and I'm looking at my, my, my battery's upstairs charging and my, like we might at one point, I might have to say, we got to switch off video. <laughs> right. Yeah. So we, yeah, because it was a more permanent setup, we didn't have that kind of, you know, kind of like looking for, um, you know, with fear and loathing at the meter, except maybe when I tried to dry my hair. But there were a couple of times, like I said, when it, you know, when we had three or four days of bad weather, um, where we would think, oh, you know, we better put the candles out tonight instead of, you know, just having all the house lights on. And I do remember a couple of times when we had to drag down like a little portable generator to essentially like plug into the house and, and you know, use it if we had something we needed. But we actually, even without power, we were not in an emergency situation. We were in an annoying situation, but it wasn't an emergency situation because our house was so, our, we had a propane fridge, propane powered fridge, and our house was really well insulated and we had a wood stove. So, you know, we had food and water. We also had a composting toilet, food, and we had all the necessities. So if we did run out of power, we were fine. We just didn't have uh, TV or internet for a while. I got to say what you're saying now is so much more meaningful as a result of my little experiments. Cause before I did it, mm. all those things were kind of like, Oh, those are things. I don't know. Not, not, not relevant to me. They're, you know, hypothetical or theoretical. Mm-hmm. And now I'm like, Oh, I can see how that could work. And, and I'm also realizing how like carrying the, the stuff up and down on the stairs all the time is a real pain. And I've been thinking like, what do I actually, how could I make this work? Cause I don't think my building would let me install something permanent up there. And if I did, how would I get the power down here? And I think of little, actually, when I, um, a couple of days into this, I was up there with the panel and a bunch of, several people from the co-op board were up there. And I was afraid they'd say like, oh, uh, all the rules mm. stuff. And instead they were like, oh, how, you know, how much power did they start asking me about it? And now I think I probably could ask them about having something more permanent. And they're still getting the power down here. I don't know how to do that. But if I could get a bigger battery or two batteries and have one up there, charging and then i could go up take the other one and take the old one back down i would take the charge take the full one down and put the empty one up and just keep alternating them it would be half as many trips up and down the stairs mm-hmm. and if i had a much bigger than 576 kilowatt hour battery and i you know before a month ago i would have not known what i was talking about just now right well it really makes you conscious of how much power you use right yes. where you know, I mean, even you as as someone who thinks about energy a lot, thinks about sustainability, I I know for myself, it's just very easy to you know, turn on the light, turn on whatever and not think about it. Um, but I do find that the reward of living 15 years off the grid was that I did take that with me. I did take that awareness of, of my footprint, uh, so to speak, with me. And even though I live on the grid now, we still are frugal with our power use. And, you know, incorporate little savings and little traditions that we used uh, living off the grid. Um, I have I don't pretend to have any knowledge of how New York City utility regulations work, but but I do love the model of being able to have a grid tied uh, solar array where, you know, an apartment building or a house can have have a solar array on their roof and then but also be connected to the power system. And then when they have excess power from the solar panels, they can sell it to the utility company. And then the utility company can essentially act as a battery. You know, when, when weather is bad, people can use conventional power. That'll be 
a couple steps away from where I am now is figuring out how to make that work. Yeah. Well, Hey, maybe the co-op board will get there, <laughs> but um, I'm trying to get them just to click to do composting. Yeah. Well, I admire your, um, I admire your fortitude and running up and down the stairs. I mean, you say some of this stuff is new to you. The idea of being able to live off the grid in New York in a semi-workable way, even for a month, um, was totally new to me. And uh, so kudos on making it work. Well, it, I mean, it's, it's totally unsustainable. And, and I'm, it's, not totally, it's, it's sustainable in terms of the power use is coming from the sun, but it's not sustainable in that I, I hurt my knee in the middle of this. And oh, no. it swollen right. and you're yeah. totally unrelated. And so now going up and down the stairs, the doctor was like, it's probably not good. It'll probably, all those stairs are probably going to make it um, take a lot longer to heal, but it's probably not going to injure anything, but it hurts. And yeah. And some, you know, so you're vulnerable to small yeah. things like that because you have this sort of, you know, outsider system <laughs> that, that totally depends on like you having two functioning knees and things like that. Yeah. I was like, oh, if I get COVID now, it's like, I might not be able to, like, I might have to plug back in. Yeah. And so partly the one way of looking at it is that I'm, I'm vulnerable in that sense. Another way is that the whole power grid, I, I've been looking up, I'm trying to find, I, at one point I found this and I, I can't refind it, but someone did some calculation where if people could go, if the power grid could go down a certain amount, like where the U.S. is something like 99.9% uptime, notwithstanding Texas a little while ago. And so we're not quite up to, oh, here's my little dig. Our, the U.S. infrastructure is not quite up to first world, mm-hmm. like Western Europe, but it's above uh, Eastern Europe, mm-hmm. which is like 99.0, something like that. I forget. But somewhere we get down to I, something tells me 60%, but I'm not sure what. If most Americans could go without power for X amount of time, we don't need peaker plants. We don't need nuclear. We just go on um, wind and solar mm-hmm. and you know other stuff if you're near a hydroelectric dam. But at a certain point that becomes possible. And if we're more resilient, we can do that. And so one of the big things is refrigerators. I mean, there's, we, I think we need separate solutions for hospitals and subways, but for 33 million Americans, that's a pretty big deal. And I know what people put in their refrigerators. <laughs> they go to the store and they buy vegetables and they think, oh, I'm going to be really healthy, really healthy. And then vegetables go bad and they're crisper. <laughs> totally. And then they buy like, oh, we're going to do this special dish. We got to get like Dijon mayonnaise. And then for like five years, Dijon mayonnaise is sitting there along with <laughs> all sorts of other things. Plus they're frozen right. pizzas, all of which I right. call doof, which is food backward. <laughs> the wall of uh, aging condiments. Yeah, doof. That's perfect. <laughs> and Yeah, do food backward. And do you know what... <laughs> Do you know what percentage of Americans have two refrigerators? No, the, I, I shudder to think. The Times did a story on it. It's something like 25%. Oh my God. And rising. That was pre-pandemic and it went up in the pandemic. And that's why we need peaker plants. Mm-hmm. That's why we need to have nuclear plants going all the time. And so that's one angle of vulnerability. But another one is, that's the grid perspective. But the human perspective is, I think I'm more resilient now. And mm-hmm. yes, see, if I live in a world where normal means on the grid, then I have to handle things differently. But if everybody were like this, it would be different. Yeah. I think then we would all be collectively more resilient and each of us would be more resilient. Yes, I agree. And, and we've talked a little bit about this, you know, the value of providing an example and the, and the importance of, you know, not being an example that people actually... Um, that provokes people's resistance, you know, where they, they somehow feel like, 
Ugh, you know, you're showing off your, um, you know, you're showing off your carbon, uh, your carbon cred and, and it's annoying me. So I'm going to just ignore anything important you might have to say. And, and I guess I've thought a lot about that. And I, I do agree with you in that. I mean, the way I, when I, when people are interested and I talk about it with people, the way I try to present it is that my life was so much easier in so many ways because I lived off the grid and not only because I didn't get utility bills, but because we lived in a relatively small house that we didn't have to clean, you know, we didn't have to spend as much time cleaning it. And we had a refrigerator, but it was actually because it had a, it was powered by propane. It was also, we had boat batteries and then we had a boat uh, fridge. <laughs> so it was basically like a large dorm fridge, which was, um, which was more than enough for the two of us. And then our, then our child, when she came along, you know, as long as you just take two seconds to think about, you know, is this food or is this doof? And, you know, it's also just not as much trouble to maintain because you don't have condiments building up in the back and vegetables rotting in the, in the back of the produce drawer. You know, you just have the food that you need because you know, your space is somewhat limited. So all of those, all of those small things just made my life easier and, and more pleasant in an everyday way. And, and that, in addition to the sort of deeper benefits and the hope that, you know, we would all do this and then make it easier for our country to have, to live off renewable energy. Um, there are these really short-term daily satisfactions to it. I heard, I want to go in a couple of different directions and I'll go one a connection to nature, I think is a big piece of it. The rhythms, I mean, I have to keep track of the weather. I have to shop. I mean, as soon as I get bring my uh, vegetables home from the CSA, for example, like if there's spinach, got to eat that really quick because that's not going to stay very long in the, in, the, uh, in the heat. On the other hand, lettuce, I stick it in water and it grows. The longer I wait, the more lettuce I have. <laughs> and then uh, like earlier, so I'm fermenting a lot more than I did before. Mm, mm-hmm. And it's become natural. Like I just, I mean, earlier this afternoon, I was just, I had a bunch of oranges. I, I'm volunteering more. I, mm-hmm. I guess not, that's not a nature thing, but I volunteer with this group that we, we pick up food that stores were going to throw away and we bring it to a community fridge and anyone can pick it up. And the deal is the volunteers get to keep some of it. Oh, cool. Like a gleaning program in a way. Well, it, it's, it's yeah. kind of like misfits, but mm-hmm. it's not... Um, I mean, it's the stuff that the stores, when I go into the store, they're like, thank you for taking this because the headquarters is like, you got to throw out this stuff and they don't want to throw it out. I mean, they get to keep some of it themselves. So they thank me for taking it. Then I drop it off and they thank me for giving it. And I'm, I took a couple of tomatoes on the way and I'm feeling like, how am I getting thanked? I should be thanking everyone else. Yeah. So it's a big win for everybody. Mm -hmm. And as long as there's this broken system that orders too much food. Uh, why did I get it? Oh, it's all this fermenting. So I had these oranges and some limes and they make a really good chutney. I just throw a little bit of salt on them. I mean, chop them up, put a little salt, put them in a jar, wait for a while. And the flavor is amazing. In the, in the middle of this, I've, I've been hosting people for dinners. I, I was doing that before, <laughs> but partly because it's people are like, oh, you're a single guy. That makes it a lot easier. No economies of scale. So it, I, it really helps to have people come over. And this guy comes over and he's like, I, try this chutney. He's like, ah, he doesn't like it. It's too bitter. But then a guy who was visiting from India, an Indian friend from India. And I say, try these chutneys. He's like, oh, this is really good. I'm like, ah, it's authentic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he starts giving me these tips on how to 
put some spices in that I wasn't doing before. And so anyway, the question to you is, is was there a connection more to nature, either the rhythms or, or what you would buy? And how did that, was that also a big part of it? And has that stuck with you afterwards? Yeah, I think so. Um, definitely a connection. Well, let me back up. So I lived in for, you know, for 15 years when I was off the grid, I was living in this very small town in Colorado. And I mean, it wasn't a suburb. It was five hours from Denver, six hours from Salt Lake. We were not close to anything resembling a metropolitan area. And um, I happened to live there because the magazine that I started out writing at and still write for occasionally is High Country News, which covers public lands and conservation issues in the in the Western US. And when I left my staff job and became a freelance journalist, I stayed there and and it was a, you know, in many ways, like a terrible place to try to be a journalist writing for national publications. <laughs> but in one way, it was great because I was, I felt like it was really good for my journalism to live close to the sources of things. I mean, it was a coal mining town. So, you know, there are three active coal mines. Um, we had a statue in the town park that had the names of people who had been killed in the coal mines. And I always, it always struck me that they had left space on the plaque for more names. <laughs> and it was a fruit growing town and it was, uh, located right at the headwaters of a tributary of the Colorado. So, you know, living off the grid made me conscious of how I met my needs from all of these various, you know, natural and man-made systems. But just living where I did also really heightened my awareness of how dependent I was on all of these small and large systems, you know, some of which were extremely exploitative, some of which were less so, you know, but all of which, um, through all of which I required something of the landscape. And I think, yeah, I have taken that awareness with me, um, both personally and, and in my writing. And I think it's, it's a useful set of goggles through which to look at the world. Yeah, I want to ask you how, how much it affects you now. Partly, part of what's keeping me going is I can, the switch is right there. I can turn it on. I can walk over and be back on the grid in a second. I know I'm going to feel dirty doing that, mm, mm -hmm. but I also know, well, I'm, I'm trying to, I don't know. I, I think that it will be seductive to just have the power back. Although I think that I'll, I think that I'll still keep my, I mean, my power bill before this was down to 96 cents. So I don't think it'll go much higher than that, but I can also imagine being seduced or lulled back into a, a complacency but I'm not sure how long it'll stick. How, what's your experience been on a daily basis or in your lifestyle? Has it changed over the years? Um, after moving back yeah. on the grid? Yeah. Well, just for a little context, uh, we moved to the Pacific Northwest, uh, partly so that we were living in a slightly larger town so that my soon-to-be teenager would have some more social and educational opportunities but it's still a very small town. We're about an hour from Portland, Oregon, in southern Washington, in the Columbia River Gorge. So I think part of what helps me not sort of just sink back into using power without thinking about it is that, again, those systems are still very visible to me. I mean, we live right on the Columbia River, which has been developed for hydropower for years and years and years and years. Um, there's a huge and growing amount of wind power 
very close to us. So just, I think we just have daily reminders around us of the, of the costs of energy, you know, what it requires of the landscape and what it requires of us. And that has helped, you know, in addition to our just, I think, as a family, we have those shared values. And so it's, we don't have to argue about it. We don't have to say, oh, well, you know, you took this huge shower and (laughs) why did you do that? And, you know, we're pretty, not that we are, you know, by any means, you know, super abstemious or, you know, or without any kind of hypocrisy because everyone is full of hypocrisy, but we have a general agreement that we're trying to be thrifty. And then we also, as I said, we have these daily reminders right in front of us of, the larger reasons why we're doing it. Talking about family. So I'm single and I uh, had a great relationship that early the spring, maybe it was late winter, but a few months ago, um, it was friendly, but we decided we weren't right for each other. So I'm, I'm newly single. I have not found a dating profile that says I don't fly <laughs> or I'm off the grid. And I haven't, I, I guess the argument could be made, try it on my profile and say, I'm not flying and I'm off the grid at least for a while, I feel like it's not going to work. I mean, there's plenty (laughs) of profiles that are like looking for, you know, travel companion to travel the world and visit everything. And I don't think they're talking sailboat. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you could put it on your own profile and sort of set it up as a filter. You know, if you think this sounds cool, then, then talk to me. Um, Yeah. I thought, I thought a lot about that, especially where I, when I was living in a town where a lot of people were off the grid, because I, there was definitely some, some very interesting gender politics going on where if you had a system set up that required a bit of discomfort, you know, ours was always, it was very modest. And I think because of that, very comfortable, but when people had systems that didn't provide what both people considered basic needs, (laughs) uh, what would often happen is that they would revert to this kind of like pioneer era division of labor. (laughs) So meaning that like, if it was a heterosexual couple, the the guy would end up like kind of in this, you know, working hard, but like basically out in the sun, you know, doing, (laughs) doing things that were pretty appealing. And the woman would end up like inside washing diapers by hand. (laughs) And then it was no, you know, it was no surprise that like, uh, the woman in the partnership ended up being like, I have had it with this off the grid thing. Um, I'm done. And so I just think, uh, which is not to say that going off the grid is people who go off the grid or, you know, going to inevitably end up in that situation or anything like that. But just that a lot of the things that we consider necessities were invented as supposedly as labor saving devices for traditionally female roles. And so, you know, and there's a lot of research showing that those actually led to more expectations for labor by women. But anyway, they did save some drudgery on behalf of, you know, women who were doing these traditional tasks. And when they're gone, women end up, often end up taking them over. <laughs> so, so I do think there's a bit of well-founded um, skepticism on the part of women to do what seems like turning back the dial. But I do think with a little forethought, it's definitely possible to have a household that's really comfortable for people of all genders and that doesn't, you know, invite or trick anyone into, you know, doing some, doing some horrible tasks that, uh, you know, went out in the age of our grandmothers. Well, right now it's me doing everything. Right. So you're doing, you know, luckily you don't have to wash, uh, you know, kids diapers by hand, 
but uh, yeah, you are running up and down the stairs and putting away the groceries and cooking and <laughs> doing all those things. So you, you have a very egalitarian household. Yeah. very. <laughs> uh, well, I'm also thinking like, I don't know how many, it just doesn't seem in our culture today that people are looking for that. It, it's not, it doesn't feel like attractive in the New York area. Yeah. I mean, I think that maybe, yeah, maybe in, in where I was living, people would see it as kind of a romantic plus, wow, this off the grid, that sounds like an adventure. Um, but I don't know if it has the same cachet in Manhattan. Yeah. Although now we're touching on something, I'm, I'm, I'm going to keep wandering a bit, that ritual has, one of the big things that has popped up here is that hmm. in, in my, this is, this, you know, this is the latest step in a lot of things that I've been doing, of avoiding packaged food, doof, and, and avoiding flying and unplugging the fridge. And I keep replacing these things First of all, each time I do it, I don't think, I think, oh, there's no way I can make it more than a week with, without packaged food or without flying. And then, so if I'm not flying, what am I doing instead? I'm not staring at the wall, thinking about what, where I'm not. I'm making the best of where I am. And ritual has popped up a lot. Like hmm. uh, mopping the floor is, I mean, I've worked that into part of my exercise routine. So before I lift, I mop the whole floor. So it's, it's just under 500 square feet. So it's not a big deal. But I get down on my hands and knees with a sponge. And I got to tell you, every time I see a monk on a movie, they're always mopping the floor. Mm -hmm. There's always or some Zen thing. And I really like this experience. And likewise, the going up and on the stairs, when I do it, I think of most of my ancestors, going, most of my human ancestors going back a couple hundred thousand years, didn't walk to the fridge or dial for takeout. They, they had to go dig something out of the ground. They had to go hunt something down or forage. And to walk up and down the stairs, not that big of a deal. And I think of it as something, it's not a ritual. It's, I mean, it's, anyway, things are taking on this, uh, like a purposeful, meaningful value to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I get that. I, um, I mean, my, if my family hears this, they will totally laugh at me because we do not keep a very clean nor tidy house. <laughs> but we do, I, I will say that I enjoy the housework that we do do in our haphazard way, because we have a fairly small house, not by Manhattan standards, but by the standards of, you know, uh, freestanding houses. We live in an 800 square foot house, so one bathroom for three people. And, and we got to keep it pretty tidy and reasonably clean for us to all, you know, live comfortably and, and get along with each other, especially during the pandemic, this became quite clear. And I think there is an enjoyment in that ritual of I'm taking care of my space I'm keeping my space simple. Uh, we don't have that much storage space, so we can't accumulate, you know, just acres and acres of possessions. Yeah, there's satisfaction in that uh, tending to basic tasks and tending to them with some kind of awareness. Did you, have you read Sebastian Younger's book, Tribe? I have, yeah. I looked this up. You know, libraries don't keep records, but it happened to be I could see when I borrowed it on my on my browser history. And it happened to be the morning that I decided to start my month, which was I didn't know when I would start it. And he wrote about how people consistently chose. He would say non I forget, like non-civilized versus civilized places. They, they, when in colonial America colonists who found themselves among Indians would often stay, mm. but Indians who found themselves among colonists or made their way to Europe never stayed. It never went the other way. It was a one-way flow. 
I often bring that up to people. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. And I think that's where I got that, that factoid. I'm glad to hear it. It was there. That I, I'm quoting it accurately. <laughs> and, and Benjamin Franklin is one of the big quotes that people uh, have about that. And there's another, there's a couple others. And I think that reading that book is like why I picked that day. It was, I knew that I was doing something for myself. I knew that I would enjoy the challenge, even if I failed the, at the whole overall task, but that I would, um, yes, yeah, not setting an example for others, but I believe that I can help redefine, help puncture their sense of impossible. Yeah, I think that's it. And I think, I mean, people are so prone. You don't even have to, people are so prone to see condescension where it hasn't even crossed your mind. If you, you know, if you're talking about how you don't fly or you're talking about how you, you know, live off the grid, people just by your stating those facts, people often will feel threatened and feel like, oh, well, you know, you're setting yourself up as so holier than thou. So I think presenting it as, yeah, as just this is, this is a convenience. This is something that brings me pleasure. This is not something I'm doing because I think it makes me a better person, <laughs> but it's something I'm doing for just this constellation of reasons that I find rewarding. And, and it, yeah, it's not, it's not sort of a, a self sacrifice. That's what I always try and emphasize. It's really something that brings a lot into my life. And well, it's also that uh, if I think most people are going to say, if I asked them, would you believe someone could go for a week off grid in Manhattan under any circumstances, whether they have all the advantage, whether they're, um, they're privileged and so forth or whatever. I bet mean, most people would say no matter what, no, people couldn't do it for a month, but I did. And so if this is impossible, if you thought this was impossible and I did it, even with, I go to NYU and use the, and use the power there, not for charging the battery, but just, you know, for my computer, then what else is possible? I want to open that question. And I'm, probably the biggest outcome I want for this, the most concrete outcome I want is for a few people to say, you can do that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, to be intrigued by the possibility. Yeah. And yeah, to think, oh, how, you know, what might that look like in my life? What might, what might it do for me? Um, yeah, I think it's, it's important not to present it as a, as a sort of way of being a purer or better person. It's important not to romanticize it. I mean, there are things, you know, as you've, as you've made very clear, there are drawbacks, there are sort of inconveniences. Um, even in my case, which was, as I said, pretty cush, there were things we had to think about, but yeah, just to get people to think about what might that, what might that bring into my life? How might that make my life more interesting or pleasant or rewarding? And yes. And, and I think you in your experiment in particular is presenting people with a possibility they didn't even know existed. So <laughs> I think there's a lot of promise there. I'll keep you updated. Yeah, please do. Are you game for going through the Spodek method? Sure. Lay it on me. <laughs> <laughs> I know a little bit about this. Yeah. So here's, uh, here's an easy question. Is, this, is the environment something that matters to you enough for you to act on it? Yes, it does. Yeah. And when you think about the environment, uh, what do you, like when you're in the environment and you look around, like what's around you and I don't like in the prototypical environment for you. And I don't mean most people, their first thoughts about the environment are what they read about, about all the destruction and the Pacific garbage patch and things like that. But I mean, like, when you look around, like, what do you think of the, as the environment? What does it mean to you? 
I think of the environment as just what I, what I live in and really what I, what I, the neighborhood I walk through every day, which is full of trees, full of weeds, full of birds, which you can probably hear. Um, I have the same three or four birds in my yard, I suspect, every day. <laughs> Mostly, you know, starlings, crows, and ravens, a lot of human-adapted species, both plants and both plants and animals. Um, and I, I think of my family, I think of my domesticated critters, and, and I think of my little house, uh, which has been a refuge for me for the last 10 years or so. So I I think of all of those things really as part of my environment. And then of course that environment has connections that it to extend to all kinds of, of larger systems. And when you, when you choose to act on the environment, is that what you have in mind? Is that what's in your heart of motivating you? You know, more and more it is. And I wouldn't have said that was always true, but what, especially as, the effects of climate change have become unavoidable. I mean, they've obviously been unavoidably obvious to a lot of people in the world for many years who have been suffering from rising sea levels and increasing heat, but it has really come home to us in the Pacific Northwest in the last couple of years, specifically. I apologize for interrupting, but I'm going to cut you off about talking about the worrisome things that are no, but I, I know, I know that's not okay. what you're asking, but let me get, okay. there is a connection. But so I would have said, I think what I would have said in before the past three or four years, I would have said, oh, what I think of when I think of protecting the environment is the Amazon rainforest or the Arctic, um, where I knew things, you know, were really at, at critical points. But now I see my own environment as critically endangered and I see my own safety, my family's safety as, you know, critically endangered, not as critically endangered as many other people's, but, you know, we had a heat dome here that brought the temperature up to 120 degrees and we don't have any air conditioning. Uh, We have wildfires here every summer that fortunately have not evacuated us, but have created these smoke events that are, you know, genuine health risks. So, I do feel, yeah, I I wouldn't, again, I wouldn't have said that was always the case. It hasn't always been the case, but it's true now that I think of protecting the environment as protecting my immediate environment. So when you're protecting your immediate environment, tell me, can you say again, like what, turn about what it could become. What was it before? What, what's worth protecting? The shade. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the the parts of it that are not human dominated, I mean, the humans are worth protecting too, obviously, but there's still a lot of, you know, there's still a, a functioning natural, for lack of a better word, there's a functioning natural system here. Uh, you know, there's living plants, there's living animals um, that don't need human support. I'm interested in protecting those because it's more and more obvious, not you know, just because they have a right to exist, but it's more and more obvious what they do to do for us. When you're interacting with them, when you're in this in, in the environment, what what's the emotional feel of it? What's how does it feel to be there? Calm, calming. 
yeah, calming. The input is is simpler. There's lots of input, but it's simpler. Uh, it's uh, gentler. That's interesting. That there's more input, but it's calmer. Yeah. So like more birds chirping is more sound. Is, is it something like that? Yeah. I mean, I think I'm just, I'm probably thinking of like, I'm probably contrasting it with, you know, staring at my phone <laughs> and, you know, being out in, uh, on a walk in my neighborhood, you know, or doing something more ambitious too, but just being on a walk in my neighborhood and, you know, walking around and, and hearing, you know, the crows and ravens and starlings go about their business is, that's a lot more, yeah, there's a lot of stimulation, so to speak, but it's not, you know, the latest horrible headline from DC, uh, quickly followed by, you know, a really amusing joke from someone clever on Twitter. Like, it, it's not, it's not the same kind of, you know, full body arousal of, you know, fear and concern and confusion. You're making me think of when I, I, I meditate every other day and mm. I always have this inner, inner debate. Should I use earplugs or not? And sometimes I do, sometimes <laughs> I don't because there's noise outside. And, but if the birds are chirping, that doesn't, I mean, there's different types of meditation, but the, some, I don't mind the noise and, so I, and I work with it, but some, I don't, I, the birds don't bother, don't disrupt the way a honk, a car honk does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I can't quite articulate why. I don't know if it's just that we know where it comes from and therefore it's less disturbing or if it's something about the quality of the sound, but it's easier to incorporate. It's not as destabilizing, I think. Based on the feelings that you described of calmness, of the simplicity, would you be game for thinking of something that you could do to act and manifest those things that you're not already doing to, uh, and I have to clarify not to fix anything environmental. You may have some impact on the environment, but to do something that you're not already doing to manifest those feelings that um, if you're up for it with three constraints, mm-hmm. one that you're not already doing it two that you do it yourself, not teaching others or not uh, telling others what to do or inviting. I mean, you can do it with others, but at least you have to be doing something and it, with some physical component. So not just reading or uh, watching a documentary. Mm-hmm. And if you're up for it, would you share, come back a second time to share how it went? Sure. I'm trying to think of something. And so, yeah, when, if someone, when someone says yes, they often don't have something in mind right away. Yeah. Okay, good. And it's usually pretty hard because most people are thinking, what do I want to do to help the environment? Which is not like most people have balanced. Like I'm willing to do X amount, but no more. And I'm, that makes me one of the good guys. And this is not that. It may affect the environment, but it, it, that's not the point. It's really to do something calm that you weren't already doing, something calming or something that has that sensory input profile that you'd like more of. Yep. Could create more of. But it's not necessarily an act of service. Right. Okay. Now it does, the physical component, I should clarify, after you do it, you have to be able to look back and say, I left the world in some non-zero way better than I found it. But the, I see. Okay. as long as it's not zero, it could be minuscule <laughs> and it could be huge. Okay. But that's not the goal. Okay. Yeah. I'm trying to think of something I, 
I would do in my neighborhood to make it more, to make it more appealing. Yeah. Can I think about it? Should I come up with something now? Okay. Yes. You can think about it as long as we figure it out by the end of this call. Okay. Because <laughs> <laughs> I've learned from experience that I'll get back to you means I'm not going to get back to you. Right. No, exactly. So, but I'm thinking about things I could, because I do take a daily walk around my neighborhood and I'm thinking about things I could do during that walk, perhaps, or after or before that walk that would make somehow affect other people's experience in a positive way. But I can't, yeah, I haven't hit on anything. Yeah, this is a couple of the things that help people are one is to take something you do that has these properties and enhance it. So maybe do more of it mm. do it in a new way or do a little bit, put a little twist on it that does something you weren't already doing. And another is a place that's the opposite of that. And maybe to calm something stressful down in some way. Those are two of the places where people often find things. Hmm. Okay. Well, I'm thinking perhaps I could, uh, Perhaps I could restart my attempt to make friends with the crows that live in my yard. <laughs> uh, Things aren't going well. Well, no, they were. Uh, we had some interlopers, and uh, and I ended up making friends with a bunch of jays, which I didn't want to be friends with. <laughs> so I could restart that attempt, but I'm not sure that that really improves anyone's experience. In fact, it might make it worse. But I could. Uh, try to encourage my family to do less scrolling. Not that they're big scrollers, but we always talk about how we would like to do less of it. Well, that you could do that, although there has to be a component of your also changing your habits because... Oh, yes. I meant collectively. <laughs> okay. So that's something I could do. It sounds like you might be still brainstorming, but that would fit the bill if you scrolled okay. less or there okay. wasn't, I mean, I had one guy who just, he simply turned his phone off earlier in the day and it oh, ended up yeah. being a bigger experience than he expected. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe a longer walk and less, less scrolling by, you know, both by me and the two other people I live with. I think that would work. Would that, if that, okay. that certainly fits the bill because- and if it's, it's something that do you feel like it would be, I mean, it, you, you only, you know, it, if it connects with this, would it increase the calm? Would it increase the, what nature means to you already would it enhance that? Yeah, I think for sure. And is it coming from that as opposed to some sense of obligation or proving something? Or? Yeah, I think, well, it's definitely coming from um, a recognition of that's what I get from my time in my neighborhood and that I'd like more of that. Yeah. Then the next step is to make it a SMART goal, which is an acronym for specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, and time-bound. Okay. Which in this case would be how many times, how often, and until when would, if we have a second conversation, I say, how did it go that you've had enough experience that you can answer that meaningfully? Okay. So would it be once a day, once a week, once a month for how long? Um, okay. Well, how about this? I'm going to go on vacation <laughs> and we will, um, starting next Wednesday, 
how about I propose to my family that we have a scrolling free vacation? Yeah. Oh, interesting. So not, not, you know, people can listen to music in the car and so forth, but, but no aimless thinking around on phones. For, and so that would be from Wednesday until, so you propose it on Wednesday and that would be for a vacation yeah. until you get back yeah. after the vacation. All right. Now history is experience has told me that if you depend on their answer, it, <laughs> it might fall apart. So that means even if they don't go for it, would you still go for it? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Cause a lot of times people are like, Oh, they didn't go for it. And I, I didn't. Right. Now I'll go for it. That's something I, that's definitely something I want to do. Now I see there's a chance of coming back and being like, it was a terrible vacation. I wouldn't scroll and they were all scrolling. I was just like, I couldn't believe what they were doing. Right. I'm probably the worst scroller. So, you know, there you go. Oh, so now that makes me interested because I can just see them being saying, oh, she's, oh, she thinks she's going to do this. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm the biggest news hound. So, you know, I'm always like, oh my God, look at this. And, uh, but my family will definitely, you know, use the phone as entertainment. I guess that's what. Uh, use the phone as, as very passive entertainment. I have to tell you that, that I, I have a friend who hasn't read the news in, in like five, 10 years. <laughs> and so I, I've been avoiding the news this year. And I found two distinctions between like what makes a site a news site. And so there's uh, my first distinction was, does a page refresh daily or faster? I see. Uh-huh. So something like the Atlantic, actually, that does refresh a fair amount. But that, I think of that as not daily. It's less than daily. Most of the story is up there for a while. New York Times, faster than daily. So I'll go to the New Yorker. I'll go to the Atlantic. Uh, but I won't go to the New York Times. Then there's another distinction that I only got this year. Like that distinction I, I figured out a few years ago. There's another one which you were alluding to, which is when I go to Wikipedia, I generally want to look up something. And when I'm done looking, at, I mean, you know, I might look at some adjacent articles, but generally I look it up and I'm done. Twitter one goes to because I don't have anything on my, in my head and I want to fill it up with, I want something to, someone else to figure it out for me. Yeah. So active versus passive or um, what's the word? Deliberate versus here we are now entertainers. Right. You're deliberately looking for something rather than you're deliberately searching out something uh, versus just opening up your trap and <laughs> checking out what flies in. Yeah. Yeah. I'll be curious how that how if something like that plays out with you, if you yeah different yeah, I like the idea of checking uh, news sites that are that are slower at least you know a bit slower and more deliberate. Yeah, if someone gives me a link to an article, I'll follow that link because mm -hmm. I'm going specifically to that article, mm -hmm. not to browse. Oh yeah, the ex another example. Of the onion. <laughs> so that changes. I guess technically it changes faster than daily, but I don't think of it that way. I just go to it like once a week, twice a week. And on the one hand, I'm looking for entertainment, but it's not, it's entertainment and it's pure entertainment. It's not the same as outrage or whatever news yeah. generally provokes. Could we schedule a call after we, uh, how long do you think it'll be? How long is the vacation? Do you mind if we schedule an, a second call after you get back? Yeah. Is that enough time? That's fine. Okay. So before we hang up or after we record, but before we hang up, let's, put on okay. the calendar of the second conversation. Yeah. And uh, I hear in your voice, I, do I read and tell me if I'm misreading a bit of optimistic <laughs> looking forward to? Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I was a bit sort of stymied about, oh, what do I do? You know, 
And then uh, this is something that has been on my mind as a habit I'd like to, if not break, at least uh, loosen its grip. And um, it sounds like a better vacation. So I'm motivated. <laughs> Possible first day of the rest of your life. Hey, every day is. You know, it's, there's something that happens. I, I don't always comment on this, but a lot of times when I first, when people first take up the invitation, they think I can't think of anything. And after they do it, they think they, there's often this comment. Yeah. Oh, I've been meaning to do that for a while. Yeah. That's interesting. And when you were talking, going back to before the Spodic method part, I talked about how we were talking about setting examples for others and setting example doesn't always result in leader in, in leading people to change. And oftentimes people, for whatever reason, I think defensiveness, perhaps, they often will see, oh, you're doing that. Well, uh, that's not for me. Right. Or, or you're just trying to be all high and mighty or something like that. The feeling inside you right now with regard to scrolling less, mm. how do you describe that in that context? Well, it's definitely, I mean, yeah, I think it's, it's along the lines of what we were talking about in the sense of, oh, this, yeah, this just sounds more pleasant. This sounds rewarding and this sounds like something that will make me look around more and um, which is something I aspire to do and, you know, have arranged my life to do more of, but yet, you know, have a bunch of habits that make it less likely. So it'd be great to break one of those. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I hope that, uh, I hope that these kinds of things, I hope that I would not project any kind of like, oh, well, you know, then I can turn up my nose at all the people who are phone drones. Because <laughs> I think that's the way, you know, that's the way to be counterproductive about any kind of change. I think that the, so a lot of people listen to this podcast and they say, oh, I like how you get people to do these little things. And the distinction that I make is not big versus little, yeah. but intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation. That's a good way of putting it. So I have to start by asking what the environment means to you. I have to go to find that intrinsic motivation. Right. I don't know what it is until the person shares. And I, yeah. And I think the difference um, in, for me and what we were just talking about is if you're doing it because you want to be perceived as a certain type of person, if you have an extrinsic motivation where, you know, my reward is going to be the approval of others, or my reward is that I'm going to be seen in a certain way, then yeah, not only do you have that counterproductive effect on others, but it tends not to last. It tends not to be something you sustain. Yeah. Yeah. And in your case, I predict okay. that you will do more than you expected. We'll see. <laughs> okay. Actually, in every case. <laughs> and that's part of why I, I can focus, I can do all these things for myself, for my own personal challenges, and not worry oh, but what about changing the system? Because there's separately from my living by my values, I'm also using this leadership technique that I think the way that you feel right now about wanting to do something and my prediction that you'll want to do more, I believe that when I sit down with the CEO of Exxon or McDonald's or whatever, that they will also have their intrinsic motivation that will come out and they'll also want to act for their own personal reasons. And after they do, they'll want to act more. Yeah. I mean, I, I've heard you speak about that and uh, I sure hope that's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> but I think Me it's too. a powerful technique. And I do, yeah, I really like the idea of finding intrinsic motivation because I think that is the, the only way that change happens. And I wrote a story for The Atlantic recently along the lines of what we were just talking about. It was called something like how to how to be a good person without annoying everyone, which is why these things are on my it's partly why these things are on my mind. And uh, I talked to a couple of social psychologists who have studied the influence of individual change on other people. You know, when, when someone makes a change that is an ethical change in their lives, how do other people react? And so I was talking to them about this, about this, you know, resistance in um, where people say, oh, well, individual change doesn't really matter. So, you know, why, why worry about you know, how people react to other people's lifestyle changes. And, and one of them made a point that has really stuck with me. And he said, you know, it's certainly true that that systemic change is important, but all systemic change, you know, whether it is a change in consumer patterns or whether it's political change, that all begins with a solo act. You know, political leaders start out by themselves. You know, they very rarely start out in a you know, pre-existing, some kind of pre-existing coalition, and they have to deal with, you know, the social costs of being out there on their own. So I think that individual change and the way that people react to our changes as individuals are really important, both on, you know, both on a very small level, but also on a systemic level. This is the core of my practice. So when we talk about your experience I'm going to make sure to ask about how that connects with the scientists' results that you were just talking about. And I'll reread that article. I remember talking to you about it last time, but now <laughs> I have to reread it. Sounds good. I look forward to it. Well, let's, re- let's pick up here next time. Uh, although, is there anything that we didn't, I didn't ask that's worth bringing up before wrapping up this time? Um, oh, there's lots to talk about, but we'll get to it. <laughs> All right. So we'll save that until next time. In the meantime, Michelle Nahaus, thank you very much. Thank you. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate.